Hello. Welcome back to episode two of the Hardly Working Podcast. Hello. So good to have you with us back again today. I'm Liam. I'm Owen. And we're here to talk yet again about labor unions in America. So, uh, last episode, we talked about our favorite frat, the <laughs> Knights of Labor. That's right. We talked about Debate Club, the AFL. <laughs> And we talked about your lefty friends who are members of the DSA, the IWW. Our, our absolute boys. Exactly. And unfortunately, things are not looking great for the IWW. Their Uh-oh. student loans are coming back to bite them. <laughs> 60 years later. Just a few years later. Just a few years later. Just a few years later. Okay. We left off sort of um, the IWW got a lot of gra- gained a lot of ground with my man Debs, Eugene versus Debs. <laughs> Being against World War One, being for organization at that period of time, and now it is the Roaring Twenties. The Roaring Twenties. We're roaring. They're yep. roaring. A decade which we find ourselves again, again yet again, yet again. Yeah. And yes, it is the Twenties right now. It is. And uh, don't listen to anybody who tells you otherwise. Right. Anybody... No, it's not still the 2010s. Nope. They're wrong. Incorrect. <laughs> you have a wrong opinion. Bzz, wrongo. <laughs> so... A hundred years ago, at this time, the IWW had fallen apart. Uh Uh-oh. Yes. Over a hundred leaders were prosecuted in 1917. Um, I think that's your problem. Too many leaders. (laughs) There's a hundred of these guys? They're spread out over the country. Okay. It's not just like, they're not just sitting in a a room. Still, though, that's like... That's a lot. That's that's two a state. Two a state. Well, you know, they left out... I don't think we had, like, two of our states back then. No, we did not have... Alaska and Hawaii. Yeah, so... And, you know, they left out some of the less useful states. Like? Name them. Uh, Please. Florida. <laughs> Rhode Island. Ohio. Ohio. Arkansas. West, West Virginia. Yeah. Just all. name all the swing states. <laughs> See how many people we can Piss upset. Off. <laughs> so they had all of their lovely leaders pro- being prosecuted. They were... Obviously, Eugene Debs and the IWW were deeply, deeply connected with the Socialist Party. Much like in the early 2000s where being against the war in Iraq was, sure, like there were people and you could find people with the same opinion, but you were like, it was very, it was very hard to find people who would openly be opposed to the war in Iraq in 2000, in the early 2000s. Wasn't, what? Weren't they like the largest like demonstrations in history? Wrongo. That's wrong? That's incorrect. Okay. Yeah. Proudly uninformed. Well, hey- I watched I watched a movie mm-hmm. starring Matt Eugene Debs. Nope, Matt Smith. Okay. And somebody else who I really liked. Okay. Talking about uh the like Iraq war from the point of view of a British newspaper. Okay, well and I don't know I about got... outside of the United States. Okay, all right, that's, that's fair. true. That makes more sense. But Tony Blair was still into it, but I think there was more opposition in Britain. Right. Yet again, uh legal disclaimer. Mm-hmm. I'm not qualified to talk about anything having to do with the United States or the. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm 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 hardly uh, I'm barely qualified to be alive, actually. <laughs> um, I guess the legal disclaimer that I wanted to make is that I'm not qualified to say anything regarding outside of the United States. Oh, okay. But because I guess... outside of the United States plus the United States is that's the world. That that's everything. I uh, yeah. Actually, just the United, just States, the United States is, is the world. Is the entire world. So. During World War One, as it was ramping up, you would be hard pressed to find opposition to the war other than the Socialist Party, the IWW, Eugene Debs. There were other opinions who opposed it, but weirdos. Yes, your <laughs> college friends who were 
paying back their student loans. Right. Right. Probably people in the uh, People's Republic of California. Right. Distinctly separate from the People's Republic for California and the (laughs) Californian People's Republic. (laughs) Right. Yes. So you would be hard pressed to find anybody opposed to World War One. So the IWW received a lot of public backlash for that. Public backlash in the sense that those wacky guys over there who they are striking and they also are saying the war bad. They were prosecuted, they were against the war, and then a little funny thing happened, funny little thing happened in 1917 in another part of the world, which has to do with being a lefty. Oh. That I, would be... Yes, yes. yes. I, 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 think I, I think I know where we're going with this one. That would be the Russian Revolution. That's right. I'm not going to get into the whole sort of dispute that there was uh, within the IWW, but there was like a fracture and people who were in favor of what was happening in Russia were distinctly separate from the the other people who were not in favor of it. It it was just a whole deal. Those sort of tensions also caused more tensions. So like, should we take political action? Should we Mm -hmm. try and get elected or should we just strike? Should we just go for economic restructuring? So there was some drama. Right. Some tea. Some tea. There was some IWWT. Then also some leaders of the IWW were imprisoned, like for striking, and then they were released under the condition that they no longer organize. So you had leaders being prosecuted and then being imprisoned and then released saying, yeah, you're fine, but just don't have anything to do with the IWW anymore. So it was kind of falling apart. Other unions in the 1920s were also struggling because, as we'll sort of talk a little bit more about later, sure, there's this veneer of wealth and prosperity, and that was true for enough people (laughs) that you could sort of discount the work of unions and people striking and say, well, what are you talking about? Things are good. Things rule. I mean, look at now, right? Yeah, the the roaring 20s. Right. Economy's Um, booming. Yep. Stock markets are at an all-time high. Mm, Well, that going to come to bite them (laughs) Um, all time high at the time exactly yeah so a lot of unions were suffering from that from the idea again regardless of even the AFL um, the Knights of Labor had fallen apart again they were also struggling because of that so during this period of time backlash government police physical backlash against unions was also growing and increasing because before this period of time the IWW was powerful like unions were changing laws they were changing not the IWW specifically but other Mm -hmm. unions were influencing public policy and you as a business owner who wants to you know as a robber baron or whatever Mm -hmm. you Uh, don't like that are are you sure you don't mean captain of industry captain of industry that's true yes I put on my captain of industry hat (laughs) your your cap of industry. A cap of industry. That's yeah. that's what it means. My baseball cap of industry. <laughs> that's not funny. No, I think it's very funny, Liam. Oh, okay. Well, you're the only one here. Do you want to hear about a strike? I want to hear about a strike. I want to hear about a strike get crushed. Well, that's what happened. By the scabs and police. Sweet. Well, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about that. Let's t- <laughs> copyright strike. Copyright strike. <laughs> well, as as the uh, as the retin link of the recording room. I yes, think, exactly. I think, I think we absolutely have rights to yeah, use that phrase. We should have, we should have called this uh, labor biscuits. Labor biscuits. <laughs> so 1917 rolls around. Yes. It gets great it's reviews. No. At the box office. The I, box I was going to say, yeah, okay, very good. <laughs> and the United States rail system, because of the war effort, was nationalized. Um, there was the United States Railroad Association, and the railroad system was basically controlled by the federal government. That okay. ruled. 
Right. Yeah. As I could expect somebody right. to say. There was uniform ticketing, competing services in different areas they were merged. They had great uniforms. They had awesome uniforms. I mean, trains were rule, so. Yeah. They had uh, they had little pink hats and uh, neon green shirts. They were the Joker? And yellow pants. I don't know what this is a reference to. <laughs> it's, it's a good uniform. All right. What do you mean, what is this a reference to? I wear that outfit every day. Oh, that's true. That's what you're wearing right now. That's where I'm wearing right now. Right. Describe my outfit. Uh, yellow pants. Mm-hmm. Green shirt. Right. Pink hat. Good retention skills. So uniform ticketing, competing services were merged, wages were increased across the board, and there were basically no strikes. But before that, working conditions were terrible. There were strikes for improvements like a decrease in the workday. Basically, when nationalization came around to the United States railroad system, it was good. Good for labor. For labor. But it was not like a bunch of lefties got into power and were like, going to do the train thing <laughs> and they nationalize the trains it was just a the train thing the train thing wouldn't that be just riding around on the front of trains that's true that's what i would do if saying I was i'm the power. king of the world yeah okay <laughs> so it was always going to be a temporary wartime measure and after the treaty of versailles railroads were returned to their private owners but congress could regu- regulate them unsurprisingly for labor conditions got worse there was an influx of workers coming back from war price levels began to go down and wages went down. So people who had been working there were like, uh, this kind of sucks. We want to go on strike. People who struck were the maintenance workers. So the ones, you know, building the railroads, maintaining the railroads. Uh, the guys you see in pictures of the 1920s with their things and their faces and their clothing. Their things? They're like hammers. And... See, you can't see this right now, but Liam is currently <laughs> taking two of his hands and just kind of motioning over his shoulder as if he's holding something right i i've been working on the railroad oh okay All the live long day yeah the big like sledgehammers that you used yes to i said hammer the... no you did not I did. okay well point is those were the really struck because the conductors and the drivers were like not affected their wages mostly stayed the same so and obviously it was, it was the construction workers uh, were... not not just construction but maintenance oh maintenance okay because of that, obviously, like, if conductors or drivers go on strike, that's one problem. But if people building and maintaining the railroads go on strike, that's a completely different problem. So they brought in strikebreakers. As we talked about last time, where strikebreakers would be made up of largely um, marginalized groups because they it was an easy job. They went to the Labor Bureau and they're like, yeah, go there. They really want people sure, to work. Like, like, like immigrants. Like immigrants. I, I seem to remember. Yeah. Right. Um, and in this case, a lot of them were African-American. Oh, okay. Um, and so, it's, again, it's interesting to notice this uh, historical trend of racial tension being, I want to say, stoked. I was actually going to say that. You're so stoked for racial tension. <laughs> um, but it's being sort of cultivated where, you know, it increased by... to Inflamed. Dri- yeah. Inflamed, yeah, to drive a wedge into labor solidarity. And I have a quote from a senator in Montana who says, All day long, I've listened to heart-rending stories of women evicted from their homes by the coal companies. I heard pitiful pleas of crying children, of little children crying for bread. I stood aghast as I heard the most amazing stories from men brutally beaten by private policemen. It has been a shocking and nerve-wracking experience. So he went to talk to um, some of the people being affected by the strike, or, or doing the striking, and how they were being affected by it. Good old Warren G. Harding issued an order to the Railroad Labor Board to say, hey, the strike breakers that are working right now, because normally um, you can't just do this. You have to bring in temporary work and you can't just fire everybody striking. But Harding said to the Railroad Labor Board, he said, the people who you have hired right now as strike breakers, 
they are now permanent. Like you can, you can say like, it wasn't like they're an order, but it's like, you can say, you are allowed to say they're permanent workers now, hmm. which kind of sucked because now you have all these people who technically were not like employed. They were striking for a job that they no longer had, but they still technically had it. But like the strike breakers were regarded as a permanent replacement. So it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> the strike was eventually broken when the national guard was called out to protect strike breakers to protect the the strike breakers the strike breakers yes because they were because were getting attacked by the strikers yes oh okay and the attorney general did this uh, and he called out us marshals to go help protect the interests of the railroads and the strike breakers and he said that the strikers had quote created a conspiracy worthy of lenin and zinoviev now, what, what, what can you tell me about the the second name on that? Uh, that I list, can tell you absolutely nothing. Which I am uh, far less uh, familiar with than, than the first. Yeah. Right, yes. I can tell you. Um, also, i just like to say that even with that amazing quote, Attorney General Doherty does not come even close to my favorite Attorney General of all time, which would be uh, Jeff Sessions. Of course. Or yep. his full name, Jefferson. Oh, Jefferson. Jefferson Beauregard Sessions the Third, the ultimate Southern man name. Pretty cool. Pretty I, I, cool guy. Very cool. I wish everybody could have a name like that. Unsurprisingly, yep. Zinoviev was a Bolshevik. Okay. He was crucial in um, managing the original revolution with Lenin, Trotsky, Stalin, etc. And then when Stalin got power, he was like, "Uh, no, you're going to be executed after a fake trial." Oopsie. Yeah, as Stalin is wont to do. That strike gets broken. That's sort of an example of what types of things were happening at this period of time that enough people were well off that you could sort of say, oh, no, um, it's good. It's cool. And then you have railroad strikes in 1917. But also in Rhode Island, there was a textile strike. There were textile strikes in the Carolinas, in Tennessee. There were a lot of strikes (laughs) at this time because, again, (laughs) working conditions were not wonderful. Sure. In lovely little Rhode Island. A striker said, he, he wrote an inspirational uh, recollection of what he had done. He said, Guido, I think that's his brother, pulled the handles on the looms in the royal mills, going from one section uh, going from one section to the next, shouting, strike, strike. When the strike started, we didn't have any union organizers. We got together a group of girls and went from mill to mill, and that morning we got five mills out. We'd motion to the girls in the mills, come out, come out, then we go on to the next. Um, so sort of just painting a picture there of mm. the interesting dynamics Right. Despite this veneer of glamour in the 1920s, people were still struggling. One-tenth of one percent of families. One-tenth of one percent I know. I was like, I, was like I, I think I can hear a little Bernie coming out now. <laughs> at the top, received as much income as 42% of families at the bottom. Hmm. 25,000 workers died on the job, and 100,000 were permanently disabled every year. In the 20s? In the 20s. Okay. But ru- the Russian events were happening, and the mainstream outlook... Is, is, that, is that how they're referred to the, <laughs> the these Russian days? events. The Russian events. The Russian happenings. Yeah. <laughs> there was a widespread fear of communists. There was a pro-business outlook because the economy was doing relatively well for enough people. And so this like positive sort of narrative really overcame reality. And Howard Zinn gives a little quip. And with the rich controlling the means of dispensing information, who would tell? So again, just sort of looking to today, jobs are booming. Folks, jobs, we're doing great. We're doing great. Look at the stocks, lowest unemployment. Folks, it's great. It's wonderful. Right. But 
if you look at working conditions and wages, wages have been stagnant since the 70s. And yeah. People are working longer, longer days, longer days. weeks than ever. Exactly. And some people need multiple jobs, which, yeah. you know, the unemployment would lower in that case. So interesting to see this cyclical sort of thing. Sure. It's like nothing changes. It just gets worse. Exactly. That's so depressing. <laughs> I love that quote. I forget where I hear it. but So we've moved on from the 1920s, and now we are in the next decade. What comes after 20, Owen? Um, I've got a... 21. Uh, <laughs> I've got some, some math proofs over here if you if you need... Uh... <laughs> yeah, can I have a paper and some pencil? It's the 30s. It's the Depression 30s. I was going to say the quiet 30s in oh. contrast to the roaring 20s. The roaring but... 20s the mewling 30s (laughs) i think like what a a lion roars then a a mouse what squeaks squeaks the squeaking 30s the squeaking 30s they just squeaked by in 1929 a little little unknown thing happened yeah a few people in a little market of stocks (laughs) right put a bunch of money in actually tried taking a bunch of money out right i I think i think that was the bigger issue (laughs) And it collapsed. Mm-hmm. You might think that the economy collapsed and union membership skyrockets. I, I might think that. I I thought that. Okay. You, uh, I'm projecting, really. <laughs> You're right. Okay. Yes. Actually, Liam, but with all this economic collapse, wouldn't union participation skyrocket? What a great thought, Owen. <laughs> Unfortunately, it did not. Did not. In 1923... Union yep. membership was five million, and it was three million by 1933. Let alone the low percentage. Yeah, I was actually thinking, what was the population of the United States at this point? I I, I bet it's going to be shockingly low. Yeah, it say, probably will be. I'm going to say eighty million. Do you have a guess? Fifty million. Fifty million. Okay. 50 million we are dramatically wrong. Really? 100 to 120 million between 1920 and 1920. Well, I would say one of us was dramatically wrong. What did you say? Actually, I said 80 million. Okay, well... That's not that far off. That's true. Come on. Okay. <laughs> I was in the right ballpark. Yeah. If you go by increments of 50 million. Right. If you round up to the nearest 120 million. million. Yeah. <laughs> well, if, we, if you round up to the nearest 100 million, we're tied. How about that? There we go. Teamwork. So, people just... A lot of people couldn't take... Uh, pay the dues there was you know obviously that public outlook was so negative towards unions in the 20s union membership was really low Mm. but surprisingly there was action still being taken there were riots and marches in arkansas michigan indiana massachusetts there were riots and marches all over the country despite low union membership because of the economic downturn it could be argued from a certain perspective (laughs) that hedged Mm -hmm. on by the communist and socialist parties the general character of the strikes was becoming more radical, more angry, possibly indicating more than just a few revolts and becoming more of a revolution. I mean, mm. people saw it 10 years ago. Whatever you think of the Russian Revolution, lefties could look at something 10 years prior and say, hey, that's a thing that happened. Economic conditions in Russia were drastically different. Oh, okay. They were a very agricultural nation. Well, and and, and they still are, so... <laughs> Yeah. So I mean, what their 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 two main like sources of their economy are like, like potatoes and wheat or something. Agricultural. It's like probably like agriculture and then like the military. Yeah, and that like, I don't think that exports any, makes any money. No, but it makes them happy. Well, who who wouldn't? The economy of happiness. So there was strikes. There was revolt, and people were like the, a songwriter, Yip Harburg. What a name! Wow. Yip. It's always the musicians. I know. Yip Harburg, songwriter. Set. He wrote a song called Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? And he talked about it and he said, in the song, the man is really saying, I made an investment in this country. Where the hell are my dividends? Mm. It's more than just a bit of pathos. 
It doesn't reduce him to a beggar. It makes him a dis dignified human asking questions. And a bit outraged, too, as he should be. So there's a lot of, there's cultural expression of this discontent. There's literal physical expression of this, dis this discontent. Things are building up. Mm -hmm. And then we have a little thing called an election. A what? <laughs> <laughs> then <laughs> we had this little thing called an election. An election. Not an election. No. Uh, uh, and not an elision either. Yes. Or an ellipses. N none of those other E-words. An election. An election. One of my other boys. <gasps> Franklin. Yes! Delano. Delano. Roosevelt. Roosevelt. Not the Seinfeld character, but the presidential character. The United <laughs> States guess. history character. Right. Won in a character in our grand tapestry. Yes. He won in an incredible landslide. Mm -hmm. um, that's one of the things that I forgot about when researching this is I forgot that Hoover won 7 million in the popular vote. Now, keep in mind there were 120 million people right. in the country. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and Hoover won six states electorally. So Ooh. not looking great for him. Uh, um, yeah. I mean, everybody pretty much hated Hoover at this yeah. point. I mean, I, I've, I've, uh, I've seen Annie. Watch oh, that yes, musical. that's true. There's a whole song about everybody hates Hoover. So. People were like, this guy is promising change. Yeah. He definitely did. A lot of his programs took action to alleviate the problems of working people. New deal. Exactly. It's interesting because we're talking, we talked about this sort of idea that a lot of this revolution, uh, this energy was revolutionary. It was calling for a fundamental systemic change, yep. saying this, this sucks, it keeps happening, stop it. <laughs> so as, as Howard Zinn puts it, Roosevelt's programs had to meet two pressing needs, to reorganize capitalism in such a way to overcome the crisis and stabilize the system, also to head off the alarming growth of spontaneous rebellion in the early years of the Roosevelt administration. So there's all this momentum building, there's all this revolutionary energy building. Richard Wolff describes it as basically going to the capital interest and saying, listen, these guys will want to take everything from you. Here's the deal that I can cut you, where we, you know, we, they tax them at ungodly like 95%. <laughs> not 90 something percent rates yeah but it was sort of this idea it was better than fundamental systemic change of course to the people who had the money and again fdr's programs did a lot of good for working people the national industrial recovery act gave workers the right to join unions and prohibited employers from preventing workers from using collective bargaining it increased union membership and the amount of strikes to improve conditions strikes yeah. doubled from 1932 to 1933 the National Recovery Act, or better known as the Cool NRA. Cool NRA, yes. yes. National Industrial Recovery Act increased union membership. It was declared unconstitutional in 1935 because they were like, no, you can't have that much power. You can't do that mm -hmm. as the president. And again, Roosevelt continued to institute policies. Yeah, that... but then he just like packed the Supreme Court. Exactly. Right? Which owns. That owns. <laughs> I'm sorry. The Supreme that Court. owns. We should do that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> are, this is my unironic opinion. You're unironically in favor of court packing. Yes. It owns. I mean, yeah. I mean, the, 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 the Supreme Court is kind of a dumb system. Right. So if you want to get stuff done, right. you should just pack it. Okay. Does that mean that like with each new administration, we're going to get like... 10 new members of the Supreme Court. So, then like, so it just becomes like, like, like a, like a yeah. several hundred member body. <laughs> he had 15, they had 50 years. It's like bigger than each house of Congress. So FDR is doing stuff. Yes, FDR. And the Communist Party is also doing stuff. A lot of things happening. A lot of nondescript things happening at this right. time. 
The communists organized unemployed councils in most cities and usually led them. Uh, the councils were organized democratically. They used the democratic force of numbers to prevent evictions. If evicted, brought pressure to bear on the relief commission to find a new home. Unemplo if any unemployed worker has gas or water turns off because he can't pay it, they saw the proper authorities. So they were doing cool stuff, basically. They were mm -hmm. doing like good community stuff. Community service. Community service. Yeah. The communists were serving, serving out their sentences by doing community service. <laughs> they were serving? Yes. They were serving our country. <laughs> Overseas. By 1933, there were 330 self-help organizations in 37 states. So cool stuff was happening. Yeah. So you see this like... That they were making self-help podcasts. Right, exactly. Self-help. They were publishing self-help books. Right. So communists were doing cool stuff in the 1930s. So it's interesting to see this economic downturn. Bad stuff starts to happen. Yeah. And people organize. They say, hey, this is not cool. We do not want this. Not cool. Uncool. Exactly. Se totally lame. Severely uncool. They overwhelmingly elect a candidate that represents what they want. Even though he's making concessions to capital, yes. But he is pushing out genuine reforms. But overall, Liter good boy. Yes. Literally the most popular president in, in like American history. Is that true? Well, he let, yes. Over, like the, People voted him into a third term. I mean, he's the most popular president in history when I am alone in a room. That's true. Is this, he's the most popular president of that room. I can't back this up with any facts, okay. but all I can say is that he overwhelmingly won three elections. D didn't he win four? I believe... I he, are you I, sure about that? I believe he died a year into his fourth term. Okay, well, we're not going to fact check that. Okay. Because that sounds like a fact. Somebody's wrong. Yes. It's either It's either Liam who says three... Or you who says four. Or I say, say four. Exactly. It's Liam. Incredibly popular president. Four elections. Pushing out reforms, unions taking action, leftist groups taking action to organize communities. Great stuff. We love to see it. <laughs> Folks, we love to see it. In Pennsylvania, unemployed miners dug... This is really fun. Unemployed uh, miners... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need a clarification on miner right there. ER. ER, okay. Yes. Okay. Um, Deep underground pickaxe miner. Yes. Okay. Um, Doug, small minds. He did the motion again, folks. <laughs> the two hands holding the object over his shoulder. In Pennsylvania, unemployed miners dug small mines on company property, and they mined, they trucked, and sold coal without company permission. <laughs> Five million tons of coal were produced by 20,000 men. They just, like, wow. went out, and, like, because they were unemployed, they're like, we're going to do cool stuff, and we're going to mine. If they really wanted to make a statement, mm -hmm. they could have mined directly down into into the into the basement of their uh, the, the uh, company of, of the company's offices right exactly and said hey guys what's up <laughs> mine directly into the vault where <laughs> <laughs> they comically keep their golden bars yeah but they're they're uh, 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 their their Scrooge McDuck uh, gold vault. Uh, vault yes Paul Maddock Marxist writer says that. All that is really necessary for the workers to do in order to end their miseries is to perform such simple things as to take from where there is without regard to established property principles or social philosophies and to start to produce for themselves. Bootleg miners have shown in a rather clear and impressive way that the so much bewailed absence of a socialist ideology on the part of the workers really does not prevent workers from acting quite anti-capitalistically, quite in accordance with their own needs. So Bootleg miners? Bootleg miners. Those are the people who mined without company permission. They're company called permission. bootleg miners? Yeah, that's what bootleg means. That's the definition of bootleg, is like doing something 
with somebody else's stuff without permission. Okay. That's what bootleg means. What do you think bootleg means? I don't know. I always thought it was a... Uh, video game. Yeah, some, some sort of bad quality video game that <laughs> well, you order online. Yes, that's that's what it has come to because, <laughs> because they use assets from other... <laughs> Right from other license from yeah. other properties, yeah, without permission. Right, okay. like like a like like my Sonic game, where his head keeps on turning around. We're moving on. <laughs> you know, it's interesting to see this again without you know communists spewing zines everywhere. Spewing spewing what? Zines. Zines. Zine magazines. Oh, it's short for magazine. Oh, but it's okay. like it, it's basically like a an, a pamphlet. I didn't know we were using cool kids lingo yes, today. Yes, cool kids say zines. Zines? Uh, lame people say zines. Despite all this cool stuff happening, most of the organizers ignored African Americans. Kind of sucks. Hang on. I thought this was going to be a cool fact. Uh no. That's not cool at all. That's not cool. In fact. No. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> people tried in some places they succeeded. Like in Gary, Indiana, somebody wrote, While the municipal government of Gary continues to keep the children apart in a separate system of schools, their parents are getting together in the union and in the auxiliary. The only public eating place in Gary where both races may be, may be freely served is a cooperative restaurant largely patronized by members of the union and auxiliary. When the black and white workers and members of their families are convinced that their basic economic interests are the same, they may be expected to make common cause for the advancement of these interests. And by patronized, you mean everybody walked in there and then uh, talked down to everybody who's working there as though they were children. Exactly. Let's speed along. Let's speed along. To our last decade that ever existed. This is the last decade. This is the last decade? There were no more decades. The last of the Mohicans. Yes. The 1940s. Mm. If we have the roaring 20s and the squeaking 30s, this is the middling 40s. The middling 40s? Yes. I wouldn't say that. I can think of a couple of things that happened in the 40s. One or two things. <laughs> We're talking about America, though. Nothing happened in America. Oh, uh, okay. I'm just going to move on now. I would not like to talk about war. This is the hardly working podcast, not the hardly interesting opinion podcast. <laughs> hardly warring podcast. <laughs> we warring have... G. Harding. We... <laughs> Damn, that's good. That's good stuff. <laughs> that's not good. <laughs> so the 1940s happened. There was a massive surge in productivity and labor power participation. And union membership union membership doubled from 1940 to 1945. Left-wing groups like the Communist Party and most unions actually backed the war. After the war, inflation grew by 17% because there were a bunch of people come back from war. But wages only grew by 7%. Wait, how much did inflation go up by? 17. 17, oh, okay. So... Wages are down, basically. Yeah. So there was a massive influx of people coming back to war. And in 1945 and 1946, there were massive, massive waves of strikes that you could kind of consider a general strike. So I'm just going to rattle off a some A general numbers. strike? Yes. Do you know what a general strike is? One carried out by the workers of... Um, the K- world. KFC? G- general Sanders? No. No. General Sanders? No, that's Colonel Sanders. I'm sorry. <laughs> One carried General out. Sanders, okay. <laughs> One carried out by the workers of the world. Yeah, General Motors. General Motors. Just a bunch of people striking in one country, nation, state, all at once. Okay, regardless of employment? Exactly. Okay. But it wasn't really, it was like prolonged and over, over a couple of years and at different times, so it wasn't really, but it was a lot of strikes all at once. Yeah. You had like 10,000 film crew workers, you had like 43,000 oil workers, you had 220,000 United Auto Workers. The list goes on. Lots of people striking. A lot of people striking. Mm-hmm. 
I can't even picture that many people. It's a lot of people. <laughs> and labor at this time, it's less and less a grassroots uh, IWW community organizing style and more and more a bureaucratic AFL officially sanctioned kind of thing. Like they don't do too much. They don't, they aren't too risky because it's sort of an, uh, it's, it's a stable part of the system at this point. Hmm. The, the discontent has been internalized in the economic system. And, and I guess approved by right those who hold power to a certain extent. Okay. And you had powerful, like powerful leaders like Walter Ruther, Ruther, who was the president of the United Auto Workers for a while, and he did some cool stuff, but he was very much like a sort of I don't want to say centrist, but he was sort of like a, a he was a lib, he was a lib, he was a lib. Um, he got on. He wanted management and workers to cooperate. He helped purge the United Auto Workers of communists. He wasn't your traditional union leader, but he was incredibly popular. Not among the communists, though. Well, he met with Khrushchev at, at this time, and one of the things that Khrushchev said was, we hung the likes of him in Russia in 1917. Oh, I, that's, I think I've heard of this before. I, well, I told you this before. You told me this yes. before. Um, I heard this from some mysterious person. Right, um, because I just think that's such a funny thing. Like, the, uh, you know, Khrushchev, evil, sucks, awful. Um, but <laughs> Very bad. Genuinely, like... It sort of shows how, like, uh, Ruther was, like, not really representative of what t- a typical, like, leftist or union organizer might be thought of. Yeah. For some reason, everybody kept calling him out for being a redhead. Like, all the articles I saw were, like, redhead leader or beloved redhead or something. Like Really? Yes. It was so weird. Was it, like, way less common in the United States, maybe? I don't know. Maybe it was a... There has been a genetic purge of <laughs> redheads. I mean, yeah. I mean, like... um Immigration from, what, Ireland was a thing, so... That's true. That's true. Yeah, maybe everybody hated redheads. <laughs> that could be it. Um, so... Just something, something's been lost to history here. <laughs> so after the war, union activism is up, but despite this, um, there's a relatively sort of conservative Congress, and they realize this union activism is happening. And they passed a lot of anti-union legislation, including the Taft-Hartley Act. Basically, they passed legislation, including the act, that it introduced restrictions on what unions could do. Um, States could pass right-to-work laws, which we talked about. Um, It disallowed striking in solidarity with other unions. Unions had to give 80 days' notice to their employer of any strikes. Sort of defeats the purpose of striking. Mm. Union leaders had to sign things. They were like, nope, we're not communists. We hate communism. A lot of this momentum is like, you know, unions have a lot of momentum going into the war. Yep. And then the war happens and there's still a lot of momentum there and, it, you know, spikes. And then Congress is like, wait, we got to tamper this. And so they pass act, they pass legislation and they yeah. pass laws. The Sokovia Accords. Exactly. The Superhero Registration Act. <laughs> exactly. So that concludes the our discussion on the 40s and this episode. So thank you all for listening. We've talked about the 20s today up through the 40s um, and sort of the interesting historical trends um, in union action and economic conditions. So thank you very much for listening and um, hope you listen to the next one. See you then. Bye-bye.